0: For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, it's our custom to have a few moments of silent prayer in order to give everyone an opportunity to make sure that they are in right relationship with God, because they have confessed their sins if necessary. First John one nine says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whenever a believer sins, no matter how small or how great the sin, it breaches our fellowship with God. We never lose salvation, but it does break that fellowship, break that rapport with the Holy Spirit who is involved in maturing us in our spiritual growth. So we need to recover that relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's restored so that we can continue our spiritual advance. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First 1 John 1, 1.9, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, You are not only the Creator of all things in the heavens and the earth, but You are the God who designed a perfect plan of redemption. That redemption involved the sending of Your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and there to receive the imputation of our sins, to pay the penalty in full that we might have eternal life, not based on anything that we do, but on everything that He did. That we might have life eternal because of the work of Christ on the cross. And we receive that only by faith in Him. Father, we worship You and we honor You because of who You are and because of what You have done. And now as we study Your Word, we pray that You would help us to uh, further appreciate and understand what the Scriptures teach with regard to worship, that our own worship may be enhanced and our understanding of worship may be increased that we may honor and glorify you even more with everything that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying the book of Revelation for the past three years. Again began this study in '04, before I came here when I was still up in uh, Preston City. So we come to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The focal point is in the throne room of God. The description of these events focuses ultimately in the fifth chapter on the Lamb who is worthy, the Lamb who comes forward to take the scroll. And as we read in Revelation 5, 9, they sing a new song, You are worthy, the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, this is one of the songs they sing. There is another song sung by the four living creatures in revelation four verse eight, holy, 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 Lord God almighty. that is the basis for the hymn that we sang earlier uh, when we were uh, worshiping in song. also they're, they are joined with the twenty four elders who Say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. This is the uh, uh, two chapters that focus on worship and teach us about worship. And so we have been studying this topic for the last uh, two or three weeks, and we need to take time to think about what the Bible teaches about worship. Today we live in a time where the church is terribly confused about worship. There are major battles that have taken place over the nature of worship, and the term worship itself has been redefined in the last 20 years. It's been redefined to speak of only the musical aspect of singing. This has, is a radical departure from what has characterized the Protestant church for the last Uh, 500 years about 500 years ago Martin Luther who was a Augustinian monk came to an understanding of the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone it was a time when everything that was done in the local church was done in Latin the Bibles were written in Latin not in the language of the people. The entire singing in churches was done by the priests and by the professional clergy. And Martin Luther came to an understanding of the priesthood of every believer and that every believer should be involved in worship. And he was uh, very much involved not only in translating the Bible into the common language of German so that people could have that before them, but also in uh, writing hymns so that the people in the congregations could sing hymns to God in their own language. Luther said, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. This is a function of music. But today there's a battleground over music, and there are those who... Claim that you can use any kind of music, any form of music in order to worship God as long as you add words to it. There is no such thing as an overall overriding universal uh, principle to govern and control the music that is used. This is in contrast to what I believe that there is a uh, definite truth that governs everything in God's creation. Francis Schaeffer, who is now with the Lord, stated in an address at the University of Notre Dame in April of 1981, he said, Christianity is not a series of truths in the plural, but rather is truth spelled with a capital T. Truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is truth concerning total reality and the intellectual Holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that truth. Truth is at the very heart of biblical worship. John chapter 4 verse 24 Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and spirit in truth. So we see from these passages that truth is at the very core of biblical worship. That means that the very least that it affects singing. It affects not just the words, but it affects the music. Because if the Bible represents total truth, then it speaks to every aspect of worship, not just, not just the words. We live in a time today when numerous biblically orthodox doctrines are under attack and under assault, not just from outside the church, but from within the church, especially doctrines related to the purpose and function of the local church, the purpose of the pastoral ministry and corporate worship. At this time, we're about to begin the. A pastor's conference, this is a focal, focal focus on Chafer Seminary and the importance of training men for the pastoral ministry and what the role of the pastor is, that he is not simply someone who is uh, a motivational speaker. He's not simply someone who is to be there for people when they go through difficult times or crises in their lives. But the gift of pastor-teacher is a gift of leadership that... Functions through the communication and teaching of the word. We could go to John. Uh, at the end of the gospel of John. In John chapter 21. When Jesus is talking to Peter. And he says. If you love me you will feed my sheep. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll hold their hands. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll visit them in the hospital. He didn't say, if you love me, you will uh, go knock on doors in the neighborhood or you will sing wonderful little uh, praise choruses. He says, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. The center point of the ministry of the local church is to spiritually feed believers so that they can grow and mature in the knowledge in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I said earlier, we live in a world where worship has been a bridge to mean only singing. And now we live in a time when the song leader has been re- renamed the worship leader. And the pastor is relegated to a secondary significance of nothing more than a pepper alley leader for Jesus. He's an emotional or motivational psychotherapist who provides a feel-good message for the people in the congregation as an addendum to what they have already done in real worship when they come together and sing what is called, according to the contemporary worship jargon, as praise and worship music. Now, we have to be careful that we don't go to the opposite extreme and say, well, let's just do away with the music altogether, because as uh, we see in the Scripture, music is an integral part of worship. It is very important, we'll see in Ephesians 5.19, that it is related to the filling of the Holy Spirit. We saw in John 4.24 that if we're going to worship God, and in this passage, the Lord is talking about a future time, specifically the church age. We must be worshipped in spirit and truth. If you'll notice in the version I have up on the overhead, the word spirit is in lower case. I take exception to that. There is a decision, though, that has to be made in understanding the meaning of this particular particular verse. What we have in this verse is the use of the word pneuma for spirit. It's also translated wind. Uh, in John chapter 3, it's already used some 10 times out of the 24 times it's used in the gospel of John. And in this gospel, pneuma primarily refers to the Holy Spirit. In the 10 uses so far, it's referred to the Holy Spirit seven times. It uh, describes the wind one time, and two times it refers to the new regenerate nature inside a believer. But what we have in this phrase is more than just a use of the word pneuma for spirit. We have the phrase in numity, the Greek preposition en, plus the dative of pneuma. And that phrase is only used one other time in the Gospel of John. In John one thirty three, it refers to the baptism of the Holy Spirit or by means of the Spirit in it's used seven other times in the other Gospels in the Synoptic Gospels with Numa, where it refers to. It's an instrumental use. It means by means of the Spirit. In fact, in all but uh, in, in both cases in Acts, when it's used with this preposition, it's instrumental. In all but one case in the in, in, in Paul's writings, does it, it refers to an instrumental use. Now, why is that important? Because when you look at this phrase in Numa. You don't have capitals in the Greek. You don't have an uppercase there to tell you when the author is using it to refer to the wind or to the Holy Spirit or the human spirit or to attitude or thought or any of the uh, eight or nine other nuances to this word "numen." So you look at usage. And when you look at how this phrase is used in the Scripture, it has this idea of instrumentality or means that we worship God or we are to worship God by means of the spirit and that certainly fits with both Ephesians 5:18 and Ephesians 6:18 which talks about prayer by means of the Spirit, that it is God the Holy Spirit who is the one that energizes our worship as part of his sanctifying ministry in the church age. So worship is qualified in John twenty-four, 4.24 as being by means of the Spirit. That should be uppercase Holy Spirit and by means of truth. Now the reason I'm emphasizing that is a lot of people want to say, That worship today is what you want it to be. It's defined by the heart of the worshiper, how you think and define your own worship to God. After all, if you bring to God what you want, what you believe is honorable to Him, God should honor that, shouldn't He? That's what Cain thought. Genesis chapter 4, he brought what he thought would honor God, and God rejected it. And he accepted the worship that was brought... By Abel, in line with uh, what he has uh, what he had revealed to them already. So what we see is that worship must be done in fellowship by means of the Holy Spirit, where He is active in our lives, and secondly by means of truth. This implies that worship, every aspect of worship, giving the music, the words, every aspect of it comes under an umbrella criterion of absolute truth. It's not autonomous. Now, the reason I make that point, you may not be aware of all the things that go on in the discussion of music today. And I'm not, I haven't even gotten to the words. But in just the discussion of what kind of music we should use in the church, the uh, basic assumption, presupposition in contemporary music is that the music is completely neutral, and we can use it any way we want to. In fact, according to uh, their literature and what they've written, uh, contemporary Christian advocates say that you can talk about good good music or bad music within styles or within genre, within categories, but you can't talk about good music versus bad music. You can talk about good country music or bad country music, good opera or bad opera, good hymns or bad hymns, but you can't talk about good music or bad music. But what they have done is to segregate an aspect of God's creation from his role as creator and made it independent and autonomous, which is the foundation for any kind of idolatry. Anytime you take any aspect of the creation, and separated from out from under the revelation of God and the authority of God, it is the first step in establishing uh, idolatry. So we see that the fact that Jesus says that worship must be, must uh, fit an absolute standard of universal truth, this would apply at the very least to the musical aspect of worship. And that runs contrary to the basic. Assumption and the philosophy of contemporary Christian music. Now, we also find this same verbiage of innumity in Ephesians 5.18. There we read, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled by means of the Spirit. And we spent a lot of time here talking about what the filling of the Spirit is and how that relates to the walk by means of the Spirit and spiritual growth. But one of the things that comes across in Ephesians 5 is the very next verse where speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord is connected to the filling of the Spirit. Now, one of the reasons that When when I'm in a local church, pastoring a local church, I try to sing a, a narrow number of hymns where we sing them very frequently is because I'm hoping that if we sing hymns frequently enough, you will begin to learn them. How in the world can you make melody in your heart to the Lord if you don't know the words to the hymns? If you've never sung them enough to learn them? and to know them by heart. When you're out driving down the freeway, and, and um, you're thinking and reflecting upon the Word of God, and you say, oh yeah, there was that, that hymn. I kind of like that. Holy, holy... I can't remember that third word. <laughs> See, if, to, if, if we're going to let the Holy Spirit have this expression of worship in our individual lives then that means we have to know the hymns. I know I'm beating a dead horse here. I can't get people to memorize Scripture. I must memorize hymns. See, the spiritual life has to do with thinking, with thought, with learning things, with memorizing things, with making them a part of our everyday intellectual baggage and get rid of some of that other baggage that we have. So what do we conclude from these well, first of all, we conclude that music is part of God's creation from the very inception. We, we understand that as the creator from eternity past, music was in the mind of God. We've looked at passages like uh, Job chapter 38, which speak of the angels singing for joy together before, I mean, when God laid the foundation of the earth. Second, we understand that music is a central part of worship and is a result of the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we tack on to the front part of a worship service on Sunday because that's what's been traditionally done. It is an integral part, it's an integral part of worship. Third, we recognize that music, therefore, must be in conformity with absolute truth, which means that as part of God's creation, it's not neutral, it's not independent from God's authority or His revealed Word. Now, I know some of you are sitting there going, well, wait a minute, I haven't seen music theory anywhere. You got an extra book in the back of your Bible? No, we'll, we'll get to that. When we discuss church music, and I'm not even talking about words here, I'm just talking about the music that we sing, we must set personal taste and preference aside. We're not a bunch of postmoderns here saying, well, you know, that's your... Culture that's your background. You know, you know, pastor. You're over fifty, and that's just the kind of music you grew up with. That's the, and and I pointed out in the past that, well, I used to listen to a lot of Jesus rock back in the seventies, and and some of it I, I'll still listen to. It's kind of fun, but it's not the kind of music that you want to set as a prelude to the study of the Word of God. The study of music and worship is not a matter of personal taste or preference or opinion, but if it is to be oriented to an absolute criterion of truth, according to John 4.24, then it is a matter of truth, and therefore it's related to righteousness, and it's related to the veracity of God. Absolute truth is then defined as a universal, overarching truth that is true for all times, all cultures, and all people. Well, what about Africans? Well, they they have music from their culture that they use. What about Asians? They have music from their culture that they use. But what we're going to learn and what we're going to come to understand is that every culture produces music, but that music is an outgrowth of the presuppositions and the worldview of those individual cultures. That doesn't mean that they just because they attach Christian words to their music that the music that they're using reflects a theistic, Trinitarian, biblical worldview. And that's, that's the issue if it's going to conform to, to truth. Let's put an illustration up here of what I'm, what I'm trying to do this morning. We've looked at John 4.24, that worship must be done by means of the Spirit and by means of truth. We've looked at Ephesians 5, 18, and 19, that it's by means of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then we're coming out of Revelation chapter 4 and 5, which is a crucial section dealing with worship in the heavenlies. Now, between the parameters of these verses, we're trying to think more profoundly, more deeply about just what worship is. Now, that's important. That's not what you normally find in terms of biblical exposition, but it's what we ought to find. As I've been reading on the uh, this whole issue of Christian music, one of the uh, books that I was reading on critiquing or evaluating the contemporary Christian music, the author made the comment, he said, the problem is that these people have not thought very deeply or profoundly about the implications of Revelation 4 and 5. See, this comes under the heading of what we would call application. Sometimes it takes a long time to understand what the text is saying. You can't just, it might take two or three weeks. And then you have to start thinking a little more profoundly, a little more deeply about what it means. How does that really impact us, especially when we're coming out of a culture where for many of us our musical tastes were set by the pop music of the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, and on up to the present, And we like what we like to listen to. And back in the late 80s, a book came out. There was an excellent book. If you uh, never got a chance to read it, I would suggest that you do so, especially if you're a parent and you're concerned about training your children. It's a book called The Closing of the American Mind, written by an unbeliever, a classic scholar at the University of Chicago by the name of Alan Bloom. And he has, I think it's the third or fourth chapter, is all about Music. And in that, he he points out that we live in an era where people have grown up uh, glued to music. It has defined the generations since World War II. We started off listening to transistor radios, and then we graduated on down the line to 8-track tape players and cassette players and Walkmans and iPods, and now who knows where we're going to go next. We'll just embed it in our brains and always listen to music. And you have young people who who are just permanently attached to music 24-7, day in, day out. They're always listening. Their whole life is governed by music. And as soon as you say, well, is it right, what happens? Well, Bloom points out there's this immediate defense that goes up and this indignation. And he makes a wise observation He says whenever our initial response to something is this indignant defense mechanism, its root is that maybe at the core of their soul they're recognized that maybe there's a point and we love that music just too much. It's become an idol in our soul. So we're thinking within the framework of what the scripture teaches and trying to understand just where does this music today come from? It didn't just pop up out of thin air. It has a history just as our culture has a history. And so we need to think about some of these things. Well, let's just put this chart up here and think a little bit about the, the creator creature distinction. This is foundational to our understanding of God and the way He rules His creation. God is totally distinct, totally other. He is not like anything in the creature. He's not just a, a big man. He's not like a blow-up doll where you blow him up and you get the, you know, the, uh, just a, 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 superhuman who walks around bigger than everybody else. He is totally distinct and totally other. He's not a big, uh, you know, Michelin man. And God, speaks across the barrier that distinguishes the the creator from the creature to his creation he created everything in the heavens and the earth and all that is in them scripture says so that means that he uh, is the one who Defined matter and energy. Billions of years ago, in fact, for all eternity, God understood everything there is to understand about the physical properties and the chemical properties of the energy. He is the one who designed light, uh, vegetation, animals, and the de- designation of uh, the genome, and everything related to DNA. He created man. So God is the one who defines what these things are. He defines who Mankind is as image bearers of God, that we were created in His image and after His likeness to represent Him and to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So God defines who we are. He defines what the nature of the trees. And He defined that there was one tree in the garden that was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if it was eaten from, then man would fall and there would be corruption entering into the universe. God's the one who defines mankind's purpose. He's the one who establishes social laws. He establishes marriage, family, uh, politics, government, law. All of these things related to human social activity is defined by God. Now, that's a fairly profound statement. That means that if you're going to think anything about politics, you better start with what's going on in Genesis 1 through 3 and society and then deal with uh, the uh, Noahic Covenant and the Tower of Babel. And you can't truly think biblically about politics or law if you don't start there. You're just starting with some aspect of the creation, and then you expand that out autonomously from God. That's idolatry. Now, we understand that if we're talking about law or politics. But Oh, wait a minute, music. Now, I don't go touching my music and my art. I like my music. Well, we have to think about these things biblically. That doesn't mean that we run away from these things and we don't have anything to do with them, but we have to understand what's going on in the world. Ethics. Ethics are grounded in the righteousness and the veracity, the integrity of God. Aesthetics. God is the original workman and creator. He created a universe of beauty. Now, the study of art, music, literature, all of these things come under the category of aesthetics. And we need to go to the Scripture and we can extrapolate principles from the Scriptures related to uh, beauty and actually build a theology of beauty. But what I'm saying here simply is that you can't come along and say, well, we... We're going to take animals. Let's just take the whole animal kingdom, everything about zoology and biology, and we're going to take that out from under God's authority. He doesn't speak to that element of, of creation. After all, that's what the Darwinist will say, and the theistic evolutionist. The Bible doesn't address biology. This isn't a biology textbook. It's a religious book. Where do you where do you go in there to understand all of the uh, hierarchy of uh, of animals and the um, the structure of the animal kingdom and the uh, taxonomic uh, structure and everything. Well, you don't, but you understand principles related to the animal kingdom because God is a creator and it originated with him. Same thing is true when it comes to music. We have to extrapolate those principles from what we have in the word of God. Now, if we're going to worship by means of truth, we have to understand that truth doesn't reside on the right side of that chart, in creation, there's a lot of little T's over there, little truths. One plus one equals two. You take a couple of hydrogen atoms and a couple of oxygen atoms and mix them together, and you end up. You throw off one uh, oxygen atom, and you have H2O, and you have water. Those are little little truths. The laws of thermodynamics. But truth, capital tree, that total truth that Francis Schaeffer talked about, resides in the thinking of God, and we have to understand the thinking of God in every area. That's our, that's our starting point. So we have the principle that God speaks to everything He creates, or He speaks to nothing He creates. This is, what, what I'm telling you this morning is really revolutionary. You will find very few people find probably no churches or pastors get. I talk about this on a Sunday morning. But when do we do worship in terms of singing? We do it on Sunday morning. So when, when do we talk about it? oh, I want to talk about it over in some Sunday school class or buried in a home Bible study somewhere and I won't talk to the whole congregation about. It. This is not necessarily simple material, but it is vital material because it helps us to understand what it is we're doing. On a Sunday morning. Now, what we've studied so far in terms of worship and music is that we've defined worship basically as an act whereby the individual subordinates and submits every thought, every aspect of his being and life to the authority of God. And God's revelation of himself, it starts with God and it has to do with our individual attitude of submission to uh, divine authority. And as we submit to his divine divine authority and God speaks to us through his word, then in the process of Romans 12.2, we are getting rid of that human viewpoint, worldly, cultural frame of reference, and we're replacing it with divine viewpoint. So thus, we recognize that worship begins with the individual in terms of being fellowship, and second, it extends through humility and orientation to God. Second thing we pointed out is that worship includes the styles and the forms of worship, including the music, and that this isn't a matter of personal taste. And third, we've gone through and pointed out what I've just covered, which is that music originated in the mind of God. Now, it originated in the mind of God. God created everything, but after the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, everything in the creation, everything in the creation, according to Romans 8, is subject to the corruption of the fall. That means that everything in creation can be abused and misused and distorted and can in itself become worshipped, and that is the source of idolatry. So music has to be redeemed through Christians who are willing to think consistently and profoundly about the nature of music and through their gifts and talents and abilities then develop excellent music that is used in, in worship. There is such a thing as good music and bad music, and we have to go to the Word of God in order to understand those things. But before we get there, we have to understand some, just some cultural aspects about music and how we got here. Because music has become a Trojan horse of pagan worldviews. One of the reasons that so many Christians are ineffective in their spiritual life is not because they hold bad doctrine, of course some of them do, but there are a lot of believers who have an orthodox view of the Trinity. They understand faith alone in Christ alone. They're saved, they're regenerated, they're justified by faith alone. But they have allowed their cultural viewpoint to envelop biblical truth and reinterpret it within their cultural or worldly framework. Many of you have listened to, I don't know what's... The matter with this thing, this is like the fourth time I've turned it off. <laughs> Yesterday it was turning off by itself. What we have in uh, in, in the world today, I mean, as, as Charlie Clough has pointed out several times in in his framework series, is the problem is that in human viewpoint we are so committed to autonomy and independence from God that when we hear divine truth, we often envelop it within our human viewpoint, opinions, and preferences, and we have selective hearing. How many times I've heard people reiterate things and go, what tape did they listen to? Where did they get that idea? Don't they listen? It's because we have selective hearing. We want to absorb that which is comfortable. And, well, I'm not so sure about that which makes me uncomfortable. Of course, that's a basic assumption in a lot of worship is that it's today because this contemporary worship is connected with the whole church growth movement and the mega churches and everything. They build on this assumption that we have to have music in the church that's going to make the unbeliever feel comfortable when they come to church. They don't want to come to church. They've been listening to all kinds of contemporary pop music on the radio and they come to church and you're singing things that were written in the 17th century, 18th century. They think you're weird. But where is it written in the Bible that when you come to worship God, you're going to be comfortable. I don't think Isaiah felt that way in Isaiah, chapter 6 when he came into the presence of God and he recognized the righteousness and holiness of God. He said, screamed out, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. See, when we come into the presence of divine truth, it's going to challenge our basic opinions about life down to the very uh, core of our being. Now, this brings up a very important point, and which I've been trying to communicate the last few weeks, and that is that ideas have consequences, that the issue in music is related to worldview. It's not necessarily that certain music is evil in, in, in itself or, or holy in itself, but it reflects a certain view of the universe. Now, what do I mean by worldview worldview? Well, you we must understand that everybody has a worldview. worldview isn't the same as a philosophy. You have know, some people who are in-depth philosophical thinkers. We have Ike back here who has uh, majored in philosophy and is a good philosophical thinker. But everybody has a worldview. A worldview is basically a set of ideas or beliefs about the nature and operation of reality. And everybody has some sort of grid through which they organize the data of life. What's a good decision? What's a bad decision? What's right? What's wrong? Uh, How do I explain who I am and my purpose, my destiny, why I'm here in life? Whether you're educated or uneducated, intelligent or not, thoughtful or not, everybody has a worldview. Most people have inconsistent worldviews because they've never thought about it very much. But a worldview simply answers these basic questions related to life, and thus it provides a mental map or guidebook or grid for looking at the world around us. And the way we look at the world around us is going to leak out in your opinions and your views on law, politics, ethics, education, uh, psychology, money, economics, right and wrong, music, art, social institutions that all comes out of your worldview worldview explains the origin the meaning the purpose of life now when worldview changes culture changes because worldview is at the very core of what we call culture that that set of ideas that we have as a group of people in a American culture Western European culture or whatever your country is that that sort of collectively helps us all to figure out why we're here and what we're doing. And we have an American culture. You have Western European cultures, African all kinds of different cultures. You have different subcultures. But when the worldview changes, the culture changes, and that's happened down through history, and you see three or four key points in history of ideas where there are major shifts that have taken place. And every time you go through one of these major shifts, it affects... How the church worships, how the church comes to it, what they do. You go back to, we talked about it the last time two weeks ago, the, the shift from the Neo-Platonism of the early church to the, uh, to Aquinas and the Aristotelian influence thought that came after the 11th century. And then you have another major shift that took place at the time of the Renaissance and Reformation, which concludes with the Enlightenment going up to Immanuel Kant in the beginning of the 19th century. All of this is, is, are these major changes that have taken place and each time there's a major cultural shift, Art changes, music changes, uh, the church changes. Because unfortunately, as you look at the history of Christianity, the church sadly imitates the world rather than influencing the world with uh, only a couple of uh, exceptions in a couple of uh, time periods. And what we see as we study this is that when the culture changes, the music changes. And then the music reinforces and promotes those changes and becomes a purveyor of the new ideals in the new worldview. And so you have this cyclical effect. Now, last time, we looked at some examples. i want to go over this again. You know, this is one of those situations where there's so many thoughts that are so deep, you can't restrict them to 20-minute sermonettes. We'll get through this. We won't get through everything uh, this morning. But last time we looked at three examples to show how worldview changed and how music changed. We looked at some things at the Renaissance. We started off with the Byzantine period, and um, and things changed. And I want you to get this idea of why the how the ideas changed and how that affected the culture. And I'm going to use this diagram of a house. That house represents a unified worldview. And we're going to go all the way back to the Greeks briefly just to get the stage here and talk about Plato. And uh, Plato had this idea that ultimate reality was in these ideas, form, which you call the forms or ideas. And uh, in this upper story in the house, this is where you have eternal reason and rationality is located up here and order. And truth and beauty, these all exist up in this uh, ultimate reality. And you use the example, if any of you took philosophy, you talked about the cave. And you use this example, most of us have, have uh, put our hands in front of a flashlight and we've created shadow images on the wall. And what Plato says is those shadow images of the wall is what you and I see in this life. But the real, the, the thing that's causing those images to appear as shadows on the wall are these forms or ideas and so for him ultimate reality and real meaning was in this spiritual realm of forms and ideas and matter was everything in the creation everything's made out of matter and matter is inherently evil upper story is good creation is inherently evil and so um, matter is governed by chaos uh, it's irrational and it's evil now Plato's ideas were picked up; they were modified by uh, uh, Porphyry and some others in the in Plotinus in the uh, second, third century AD, and entered into the church. Now this thing got put in backwards. So we have Neoplatonism influenced Christianity, and instead of having forms at the top, you had grace. This was what God provided, and order, truth, and beauty are still located up in that. Uh, upper story, where reason and spirituality are ultimately located in that uh, upper story. But notice this sets up a dichotomy, because matter is no longer evil, but notice the reason I have it in smaller letters is because it's not as important. See, that which goes on in the physical world, the physical universe, isn't evil in the Christian form, it's just not significant. Now, one of the ways this had an impact is that whatever you do, if you're a bricklayer or a carpenter or a plumber or a lawyer, you're operating down that lower story, and what you're doing there just really isn't that important. What's really important is what goes on in the upper story, where there's spirituality. So the purpose and function of... Uh, of worship in the church is to get everybody pumped up into that upper story, and they did that in the early church through mon- in monasticism and in asceticism, and uh, going. Some of the men would go out and live in the desert, like Simon Stylites, sit on top of a pole for seven years, and everybody thought he was super spiritual. And you had things like this because spirituality was in this upper upper level. And this dominated that thought in the early church, and so we, this is what influenced the Byzantine art, which is what we looked at last time. Then, when we come into the late middle ages, you have the influence of Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas changes the terminology, because he's influenced by Aristotle. Not Plato. I'm not, not Plato. And he changes the terminology. The upper story is grace. And the lower story is nature or what we would call creation. But he separates this, these two and he makes the upper story autonomous so that grace is a super gift, a super added gift. It's really optional. It's not essential for every human being to find meaning, purpose, and happiness. Now in the lower story, in the realm of nature, creation, it's complete and sufficient in itself. See, the upper story of grace provides revelation. That's the canon of Scripture. But the lower story of nature has its own books, the book of science, the book of, of uh, psychology, the book of uh, whatever field of empirical studies you have. These are other books of knowledge, and they're viewed. And what he does is he really, his thinking really sort of slips the anchor on these other sources of knowledge where they are viewed on the same level of truth as the Scripture. One of the ways this kind of shows up in, uh, in a- even today uh, is you'll hear Christians talk about, well, all truth is God's truth. And you first hear that, you think, well, what's wrong with that statement? All truth is God. If it's really true, it is God's truth. What they're saying is all truth—that is, the truth that you derive empirically from biology or geology or psychology or sociology—is on the same level of truth, capital T, total truth, as what you get in revelation from God. And so you can find happiness and meaning and purpose without going to the revelation of God. And see, what Aquinas did was he sets up this dichotomy, and it has a reverberating effect down through history, and I'm going to try to show you how this impacts uh, music. For one thing, as a result of, of, of Aquinas' separation here and the influence of Aristotle, and he restored, he does some good things here. It's a restoration of creation as creation that's valuable. See, under Platonism, it wasn't valuable. It was not evil, but it wasn't all that great. But now nature is worth studying. And so this sets the stage for the Renaissance. Uh, our artists began to paint landscapes as real landscapes because nature has value. In, in the realm of music, uh, in, in the Byzantine period, uh, we played that Byzantine chant last time, it's almost otherworldly sounding, and you couldn't understand the words because of how they were sung and the fact that they were in Latin. So the words really didn't matter that much. But with the Renaissance, as you begin to restore emphasis on the lower story and on the details of creation, words begin to matter. So, uh, composers are writing, uh, pieces where the words can be understood and the words have meaning. And this is good. And it's this same period of the, of the Renaissance we'll get to in a second where, uh, where the Reformation comes out. And this is why Martin Luther, is so interested in writing hymns like a mighty fortress is our god in the language of the people so that they can understand and think rationally about what god has done and understand what has been said and the people can sing it which focuses the thought of uh, focuses their thinking on those words uh, unlike in the catholic churches where they were just listening to a a formal choir singing in in Latin now with the Renaissance this is a new period of time it's it's really called a rebirth and it's a shift because now man becomes important just as man and I have a quote here from uh, Giovanni uh, Pico uh, Della Mirandola in his work The Oration on the Dignity of Man and in this work he portrays God as saying the following Quote, God is speaking to man. Quote, the nature of all other beings is limited and constrained within the bounds of laws prescribed by us, i.e., the Trinity. Thou, he says to man, is constrained by no limits. These are my editorial comments you should think about. Well, what about sin and creatureliness? Man, see, is limited. But see, man is elevated so much in Renaissance thinking that it's all about the potential of man, How modern does that sound? That man is constrained by no limits. Well, what about sin? What about corruption? What about his creatureliness? Well, he has God saying, You are constrained by no limits in accordance with thine own free will. See, free will here is not volition as we talk about. It. it is pure autonomy, total independence from God's revelation, and because that was all mixed up, of course, in the Middle Ages with the authority of the church. He goes on to say that, that picturing God speaking here, he says... You shall ordain for yourself the limits of your nature. In other words, man, you define your own limits. They're not defined by God the Creator. We have set thee at the world's center and have made thee neither of heaven or of earth. Wait a minute, what does Genesis 2 say? That God made man from the dust of the ground? Neither mortal nor immortal. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15? So that with freedom of choice and with honor thou mayest fashion thyself whatever shape thou shalt prefer. You see, the the anchor to the authority of God has been completely slipped by the application of Aquinas' thought. Now man can do whatever he wants to. Man becomes the measure of all things. So in the Renaissance... Grace is still this super gift that's an optional feature. You don't really need God in order to find meaning, purpose, and happiness in life. God doesn't necessarily address the details of life. And in the lower story there in terms of nature, man rather than God becomes the standard for truth, the standard for what is right music, what is good music. It's personal preference. See how it just sets the stage for everything that dominoes afterwards. There's other books of truth that are just as true as the Bible or Revelation. Now, when you get into the Renaissance, as I pointed out last time, the focus is on man. In the Renaissance, which affected Southern Europe, you go back to the classic Greek and Roman periods for the models of the ideal man, as demonstrated in the picture of of, uh, the statue of David by Michelangelo. And this is also an example of the fact that in art in the Renaissance... The naked human body is portrayed as art for its own sake to the ideal of the human body. You have, you have very little nudity in uh, medieval art. But the focus here is on man and glorifying, <clears throat> glorifying man. In the uh, Renaissance, the, they picture uh, man as about to perform uh, perform the action. And the main thing I want you to understand here is as the worldview has shifted now, it takes into account nature, and nature is more realistic. And that's a good thing, but it's eventually going to have negative, negative consequences as that, as that is laid out. Uh, musically, as I pointed out, words, the individual details have become uh, very important. Words, and, and the composers try to compose music, That fit the words, and that was a that was a good idea. Where the words were so dominant, remember they're still operating within a theistic biblical worldview, even though they're beginning to adopt pagan ideas. The overarching idea is still uh, theistic. Luther writes, begins to write hymns at this time, and Luther is very careful about the music he chooses. Now, one of the things that will happen sometimes is you'll talk to somebody about music, and they'll say, well, Luther, Luther just took an everyday barroom tune for uh, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. See, we can just go out and pick anything we want, and, and the answer to that is twofold. Number one, he, that's not true. Number two, researchers have have uh, understood that that Luther wrote a number of the hymns. Number two, he borrowed a number of the Uh, uh, the musical melodies from other church songs that were already in existence. There's only one example of one of Luther's hymns that used a popular melody, and he had actually written an alternate tune himself for that hymn, which he wrote. But what everybody misses is the popular music of the 16th century was music that came out of what? A theistic, biblically-oriented worldview. It didn't come out of an existential, nihilistic, postmodern, relativistic worldview. So, for Luther to use music that came from his surrounding culture was a radically different thing than people taking music today. I remember uh, back when I was in high school, we would sing Amazing Grace to the tune of uh, House of the Rising Sun. Y'all remember days like that? that was, I mean, see, you're just taking pagan music. Which has its own message that is totally contrary to scripture and how in the world could you sing that without thinking about the meaning of that? Well, you go into the Baroque period and see the Baroque period is bigger. It's taking this, this emphasis on nature now that man can really explore in nature. See as a result of, of this emphasis on nature you have the birth of modern science and you have, uh, Christian scientists like like Robert Boyle and and Isaac Newton who are who are solid believers in fact you may not know this but Newton wrote more about the Bible and theology than he did about science. And see but they're beginning to explore nature for nature's sake to understand the creation of God, and, and the way this develops into the end of the Renaissance period, which is known as the, the Baroque period, is now everything is, 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 is bigger than life. Baroque art is characterized by tremendous drama and intense color and light and, and, uh, the use of shadows. And so David now is not pictured as just standing there still, frozen, as you have him with with Michelangelo about to fight Goliath, but he is in action. He has already thrown the stone. There is a dynamism that is there in uh, the Baroque period, and this comes across in music. So here we have more show and tell. The piece that you're listening to is by Bach. It's... Entitled Era, Abersight Nietzsche Fleischlich, and you hear how, how big the sound is as it's developing all kinds of flourishes and, and the, the drama, and the color. This is the same kind of thing that is, that is seen visually in the, in the visual art is displayed in the music. It's very active. It's got an outward focus, and it's different from the more introspective, contemplated stuff that music that characterized the earlier Renaissance and the Byzantine period. And with Bach, it's designed to to energize our thought more than emotion. That's why there'll be a reaction later on to that in, in the uh, Romantic period. Now. That brings us up to a that brings us up to a significant event that occurs at the beginning of the nineteenth century. I have a philosopher in Europe by the name of Immanuel Kant, and he changes everything. Because up until the end of the nineteenth century, everybody it didn't matter whether you were an unbeliever or a believer or a Christian a non Christian or a Platonist a Aristotelian or what you were. Everybody believed there was some sort of unifying truth out there that was out there. They might debate who had it, but they believed there was such a thing. But after Kant, you can't know things as they are. You can only know your perception of them. And this changes. We're out of time. This changes how... Art is portrayed. It we'll come back next time. We'll talk about what happens with the um, Impressionists in both art and music. But uh, this is important to understand what sets the stage for a beginning shift in hymnody. Because what happens in the, in the 19th century, there's also the rise of Romanticism, subjectivism, and a focus on the self that is merely a precursor of the kind of subjectivism and feeling oriented of music that we have uh, have today. In fact, the father of modern liberalism lived at this time. His name was Friedrich Schleiermacher, and he thought Christianity was all about feeling. And it was all part of the shift that took place at the beginning of the 1800s. Now, all of this is designed to help you understand how we can make music, uh, how, how we can redeem music in terms of a biblical worldview. And we'll come back Next time we'll get there, we will get there, and talk about the fact that if music isn't neutral, that there are criteria, there are absolutes that we use to judge and evaluate the kind of music that we use to worship God. So we'll come back, we'll start with Immanuel Kant next time. But we need to understand the significance of this music. Music, worship, is designed to glorify God. The music is designed, I'm going to read you my conclusion here, in the definition of music. Music is an aid to the words which focus our concentration on the great doctrines of Scripture. It's the words that we rehearse that talk about who God is and who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross and how we were saved. It's as we reflect upon those things in the words that that content then has an impact on our emotions. It's not the music that should affect our emotions. It's the words that affect our emotions. Now, the emotions should not be driven by the music. But what's happened today is that people think the music is what's to create the mood of worship. But it's the thought. Christianity is always about thinking. It's not using the music. If you use music in your devotions, in church to create a mood of worship, then you've created an idol out of the music. It's the content of doctrine, the content of the Word of God that focuses our attention. And as we contemplate the grandeur of God and His grace, that is what impacts us. An understanding that we are nothing We're created in the image of God, but we're fallen. But God did everything to provide that perfect salvation for us in Jesus Christ, that by faith alone, simply trusting in Him, we can have eternal life. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have... You to come to, we have your word that informs us, that teaches us, that guides us, that sheds real light in our lives. As the psalmist said, it's in the light of your truth, in, the, in your light, that we see light. Now, Father, we pray that as we contemplate these things, that we would not set them aside because we don't understand them or because it doesn't fit with our natural biases or, or preferences in music, but that it would cause us to think more deeply and profoundly about you, your creation, about music, about worship, that we may honor and glorify you in a biblical way. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation and certain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. It's a matter of understanding that he died on the cross as your substitute. He paid your sin penalty. There's nothing you can do by joining a church or by being involved in ritual or doing any kind of uh, good deeds or being involved in any kind of uh, ethical practices that impresses God. It is simply a reliance, a trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. This is your opportunity right now to make that sh- sh- your eternal destiny sure and certain. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things we study today.